So the majority of the calories go to things other than becoming meat or milk to feed other animals. And so that inherent inefficiency in the food system has caused all sorts of problems. It's not just environmental problems and human health problems and animal suffering. You know, it's also the corners that need to be cut to make this inherently extremely inefficient approach to food borderline profitable are really bad for farmers, are really bad for the workers in factories that, you know, that produce animal products. And so really everybody loses as a result of this 90% staggering inefficiency. That was Oliver Zahn, the CEO of Climax Foods, a man who wants to save the planet by using AI to make vegan cheese. And this is Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro, where we talk about how to get ready to live a more purposeful and empowered life. Last week, I talked about my first rather disturbing encounter with AI, discovering a copycat of my cookbook on Amazon, which many believe might have been produced by a robot. The mass exploitation of human creativity and art is no doubt one of the major drawbacks of the current explosion of artificial intelligence. So it's easy to understand why some believe that we should just do away with all forms of AI, that the next technological frontier maybe is best left unexplored. But what about AI and food? I've been vegan for over seven years, and for the most part, it's been pretty easy. I'd be lying, though, if I didn't say that there were some tastes, textures, and food experiences that I miss. One of those is my grandmother's kumtang, a Korean dish that used to take her days to make for me. Another? Ooey, gooey, melty, stretchy mozzarella cheese. Enter Oliver Zahn. The former head data scientist of Google is now the CEO of Climax Foods, a California-based company committed to saving the planet by creating a more sustainable way to feed the world, starting with cheese. How do robots fit into the picture? Well, as Oliver describes, robots aren't actually inside the cheese, nor are the robots even making the cheese. Instead, Zahn, a Harvard grad and astrophysicist, utilizes machine learning in order to collect, collate, and analyze enormous amounts of data to identify the best combination of plants to create delicious, nutritious, and cost-efficient foods. There are over 300,000 edible plants on this planet, not to mention their innumerable derivations and combinations. Put simply... It would take thousands upon thousands of years to hire, teach, and compensate human beings to experiment with all of them and to do a really not perfect job of it, might I add. Climax Foods utilizes AI to do that work for us, thus accelerating the process in time to, as I said, save the planet. Because here's the thing, y'all, we do not have thousands and thousands of years to do that. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, Mr. Zahn. Hi, Joanne. How are you doing? Excellent. <laughs> so, before we get started, I actually wanted to talk about the first time we met. Do you remember this? Yes, definitely. <laughs> 
at Matthew Kenny's party, right? No, it was before that. Okay, it was let's start again. <laughs> cut. <laughs> Take two. <laughs> Testing Oliver's aunt's memory. <laughs> no, it was actually at the Mercy for Animals gala. Oh yes, of course. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It was so funny because I remember. It was the first time that I had to wear an evening gown to an event since like prom in mm-hmm. like high school. So it had been many, many years. And so I'm wearing this evening gown and we're like all kind of mingling around before the big event. And like this guy comes up to me and he's like, are you Joanne from TikTok? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, I want you to try this cheese. And you literally had the cheese in your pocket. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and that is yeah. how I met the future of food, right? Yeah, major, major fanboy moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, even the cheese that you had in your pocket to share with me at that moment was pretty incredible. And with that really amazing story, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, what is Climax Food? Yeah, so we, we're a very unique company that is trying to come up with a better food system. So truly better in terms of everything that people usually care about when it comes to food. Better tasting, more nutritious, safer to eat, more affordable. No, you know, food sensitivity should ideally be involved. So there's broader access to it. It's, it's more equitable in that sense too. You know, if more people can afford it and there's fewer people with sensitivities, that would be wonderful. And so we have a very sort of unique approach to that. The idea is animals in the food system have served us as a species incredibly well for thousands of years and you know there should be a lot of sort of gratitude towards towards everything animals have done for us and they domesticating animals and using them for meat milk and milk products and eggs was an amazing innovation for us humans 10,000 years ago when we had the idea and you know there were also some weird quirks about it like just the idea of one mammal eating the milk from another animal is, is very unique, right? No other animal does that. But again, like kind of weird and kind of innovative. I have a background, I grew up in Bavaria, and so I have a lot of appreciation for that. But at the time when these technologies, as you could call them, were invented, there were a thousand times fewer humans on Earth. There were, you know, a few million humans on Earth. And, and this, using animals in the food system to take a lot of plants, to convert them into very few edible calories, just does not scale to a planet that is as packed as today. When there are real risks of global warming, you know, environmental pollution, pandemics that have largely come from animals in the food system, we need to come up with a better way. And that is actually totally natural. It's not something that should be alien, foreign to us, because that is exactly what humans have always done. We've always come up with better ways to take the resources nature gives us and convert them into something that, again, tastes better, is more nutritious, safer to eat easier and therefore cheaper to produce. So we're just sort of taking that tradition of humans tinkering with what's around us to the next level. And the unique way in which we're doing that is through this interplay between humans' intuition and computers' sort of raw force, compute force, having us, having humans interact with data scientific tools and machine learning, AI, as it's also called. Robot. Uh, yeah, to, to help us sort of fill the gaps in, in predicting how to best take natural resources and convert them into foods. It's important to note that the plant kingdom is vast, right? There's 300,000 known edible plants, and there is an infinite number of ways you can take these plants and turn them into something that behaves more like what we want. Again, more nutritious, more tasty, etc. 
And for humans, it's just not feasible to investigate all those ways. We, you know, it would take millions of years for all the human, you know, genius chefs in the world to, to, to be in thousands of kitchens to, to try every, every possible combination. And even that wouldn't, wouldn't be exhaustive. So that's why we use, we use data collection principles and databases that we create here that, are, that have been used in data science outside of food for a long time. My background is actually in computational astro astrophysics, and I spend time at Google and other big tech companies. So we're using similar techniques, but an application to food. Mm. And that's something that just has never been done before. And I think part of the reason it's not been done is because you don't, in machine learning in general, in AI, you don't know at what point your computer algorithms will become useful. How much data you need to feed them, what, what the quality of the data needs to be like, you don't know that a priori. You know, some people have more intuition than others in guesstimating how long it'll take. But, but in general, solving the so-called cold start problem in AI is, is something that's notoriously, you know, a little bit hard to predict. And so that's why when you, from the perspective of somebody starting a food company, you know, you, you want to know at what point your core thesis will actually bear fruits. Mm -hmm. Meaning, will you, you know, will it take you one year? Will it take you 10 years? Will it take you 100 years until your approach is actually, uh, is actually useful? Humans are pretty good at, at intuiting what will work in food. But again, the, the search space in plants is just too vast. And there's sometimes sort of hidden trends in plants that humans would just not be able to, to, to predict. And so in, in, in theory, yeah, you want to use computers to accelerate the product innovation process. But in practice, nobody knew how long it would take. How did you figure that. out how long it would take? Well, we just tried. We took a little bit of a, of a risk, right, like most startups do. And we had some hints that in some areas it would be faster. But we, you know, for making holistic sort of food products that check all the boxes, meaning they're they, they, they have very convincing flavor profile, texture profile. When you heat them, they perform similarly. They're more nutritious than animal products and uh, cheaper to produce. We didn't know if you could check all those boxes, you know, in one year, 10 years, 100 years, you, you name it. Uh, and yeah, but we've proven this approach is actually really, really efficient, very, very fast. Some of the most vocal supporters of meat and dairy rely upon the following refrain. It's natural. We're meant to eat this way. I was this intrigued to hear Oliver call the consumption of animal products a technology, something pretty, well, unnatural. What did he mean by this? One of the things that you said earlier on, which I think is really important to sort of set the ground for our conversation, and particularly for the work that you're doing, was that us utilizing animal products for food and nutrition was an innovation. It was a technology, I think you called it. What do you say to all those people who say, well, that's not technology. That's just the way that it's always been. That's human nature. We were created to eat animals. But it sounds like you're saying something a little bit different. Maybe 20,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, humans weren't eating animals or at least not primarily animals. Yeah, I mean, originally, right, we're... As, as, as they say, hunter-gatherers, where we collected a bunch of plants, vegetation, and then hunted some animals. There were some areas where humans erred more on the side of animals, and, and some where humans had more plants in their diet. So we've, we've traditionally eaten sort of a mix, but the domestication of animals and a very, very narrow subset of the animal kingdom 
using that, you know, cows, chickens, pigs, etc. And then in particular using some of the product, you know, sort of at scale using dairy products and eggs at scale is something that is a fairly recent, you know, 6,000 year or, or, or so old innovation. Mm. So we definitely have not evolved to crave these foods, in particular dairy products. There is no evolutionary reason why we would, why we would, why we would crave those. It's an, they're acquired tastes, again, that served us really well. You know, cheese is a good example where humans had the idea to intentionally ferment and age, you know, in other words, to intentionally make dairy go bad <laughs> with specific types of microorganisms that are safe to eat so that the acidity of the food is so low that other microorganisms can't get into it. I mean, this is sort of, you know, part of lots of uh, cultures that have fermented food traditionally, including Korean culture, um, that, that, that you, you want to keep sort of unwanted microorganisms out of it and at the same time create very rich flavor profiles, also make the food more digestible. And so, yeah, it was, it, it, it's definitely not sort of an evolutionarily necessary mm. product in our diet. Mm. The other thing that I think would be helpful for people to sort of understand is what problem is Climax trying to solve with its innovation? Again, uh, animals in the food system worked really well when there were a few million people on earth. It just doesn't scale to today. The animals in the food system produce more global warming than all modes of transportation combined, flying, boating, trucking, you know, personal driving, etc. They also use about a third of the world's fresh water and they use 40% of the world's usable land surface area. So a lot of the plants grown on earth today are actually grown to feed animals because you need to feed them 10 times more calories than you get out of it. Again, you know, animals have not evolved, including ourselves, have not evolved to become food for other animals. In fact, we've evolved to do exactly the opposite, to not become food for other animals. So the majority of the calories we consume go to things other than becoming meat or milk to feed other animals. And so that inherent inefficiency in the food system has caused all sorts of problems. It's not just environmental problems and human health problems and animal suffering. You know, it's also the corners that need to be cut to make this inherently extremely inefficient approach to food borderline profitable are really bad for farmers, are really bad for the workers in factories that, you know, that produce animal products. And so really everybody loses as a result of this 90% staggering inefficiency. Again, that inefficiency works well if you, you, know, you have the whole planet for a very tiny number of humans, but it, it just doesn't scale to today. So we're trying to solve this by, instead of using animals to convert plants, and this, it's really important to remind ourselves that there's basically primary protein and secondary protein, right? There's unprocessed protein, which is plant protein and fungal protein. And there's processed protein, which is animal protein, right? Animals take plants and some animals eat other animals that have eaten plants, but it all comes from plants and they convert into different types of protein and fats and so on. So this, this process is just very inefficient. So the idea is, can we make the process simpler, cleaner and more efficient by taking the plants directly and instead of metabolizing them through the complex you know, body of, of, of a mammal or another animal, we, we process them less. We, we, we use them in their more native form. But I believe the only way to make a difference in the world is, is by meeting consumers where they are and giving them a truly superior product. And this is the, the thesis that we need to prove out that that's actually possible, right? Can we make products that taste the same? Of course, 
once you open the space of possibilities to instead of using one very narrow subset of plants that you funnel through very uh, narrow sort of group of animals to eat them, if you use the entire plant kingdom and you have an infinite number of ways to, to process those plants, you could theoretically make products that are even better than animal products. But initially, you know, I think sort of the, the standard, the gold standard for most humans on earth is to recreate the animal products full experience as closely as possible. So when you're talking about these problems, the inefficiency in particular, just so that we're kind of on the same page about this, I want to make sure I understand this, because I think this is a really important point, is that we all agree, you know, some vegans are like, you know, protein schmotein, but we, we agree protein is a pretty important macronutrient for human resilience, survival, all of those things, right? And the idea is that plant protein is probably the least processed, if completely unprocessed protein available, because it comes directly from the main source, the primary source of protein, mm -hmm. right? But then it actually goes through the blending or processing when it's consumed by animals, which we then in turn consume. So the protein that we're actually getting from a chicken breast or steak or, you know, bacon, that's processed. It's a secondary form of protein. But the inefficiency that you're talking about, this 90% number, is that it takes 90 grams or 90, 100 grams of protein in order to, or 100 calories, is that what? Yeah, 100 calories. Any, any resource, calories, protein, fats, you name in it. In order to get 10 Exactly. The majority just gets used to keep the animal going and make it do all the things animals... So themselves. when you translate that into dollars, for example, or when you translate that into labor, when you translate that into any metric of productivity, mm -hmm. we're talking about massive amounts of inefficiency that's being extrapolated on every basically measurable level. Yes, exactly. It hurts the farmers. It hurts other producers in the, in the you know, chain to the final product. It hurts consumers because the products are actually not that you know, cheap. You know, for us, it might seem like animal products are not that expensive, but they are actually quite expensive for a lot of people on earth. The people that are less affluent often revert more to plant-based diets. Yeah, and so ideally we can, again, create the same sort of wonderful experience that uh, the taste of animal products gives to us but in a much more efficient way and a much safer way as well. Here's the thing, getting vegan cheese to actually taste like cheese, well, I feel like that's only half the battle, maybe even less. Will it have the same amount of protein? How much will it cost? Will it be packed to the gills with nuts and soy and other potential allergens? These are just some of the barriers to entry that stand between companies like Climax and the average person's dining table. So I wanted to see how Oliver planned to hurdle them. So when you talk about this wonderful experience that animal products gives us, you know, and where, wherever we are on our journey towards eliminating animal products from our lives, if you're even on that journey, I think we can, you know, pretty safely agree that human beings enjoyed historically the taste of cheese, the taste of yeah. meat and all of those things. But is Climax trying to do more than just mimic the taste of animal foods? Yeah. So the idea is to make a true zero compromise product. Meaning, in addition to it tasting the same or better, we also always require from ourselves to improve the nutritional profile beyond that of the animal product. So our launch products and all our products down the road will have the same or higher protein content, will have a better fat profile. And, you know, launch products, for instance, are much higher in polyunsaturated fatty acids while having no cholesterol and less saturated fat. 
but uh, yeah, also better mineral profile. So the idea is to truly make next gen versions, true successors that deserve to be successors, right? I think a lot of I've you know I've been plant based for 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 a long time, except for the animal products I sample to remind myself of what it is that we're going after. And it's fairly straightforward to have a complete sort of nutritional profile in your in your plant based diet. But when it came to sort of alternatives, especially on the dairy side, and this is one of the reasons we st we're starting with cheese, you know, the products don't taste the same. They're not convinced. They don't have the same sort of satisfying emotional. They don't deliver the, emo the emotional experience I grew up with. I mean, in addition, they're often nutritionally inferior to the animal product in some ways, like protein, which especially in dairy is really important because it's extremely bioavailable um, and, and, and high quantity protein. And then sort of to add insult to injury, they're often more expensive. So you're trying to convince consumers to do something that's great for the environment, maybe their health, but even that is kind of questionable, while asking them for more money and having an inferior flavor, flavor and texture profile. That's just not going to really change the world because the vast majority of consumers are not going to agree. They're not going to do it. And so I think the only way you can really move beyond the status quo is by creating sort of true deserving successors that are better in every way. And yeah, I do think... The starting point should be to meet consumers where they are and, and give them that experience that, that they've grown fond of, but then you know, add better nutrition and, and, and a more affordable price. We can, in some cases, and we're already seeing signals of that, even on the sort of flavor side, out-innovate the animal product. Mm. If we give people sort of 90% of, of what the animal product is, and this is sort of the beauty, right? When you have sort of this data scientific power to go in any direction, you can pick the pieces from the animal product that are already perfect, and then you can add mm. other things make that it make more it perfect. more perfect. Yeah, <laughs> like you, you, know, you make a, a cheese, like a brie that has all the gooiness and sort of richness of, of a dairy brie, and then you add a little bit of a floral component or a fruity component on the side that, that, uh, that inspires humans. To, you know, it, it, it can, it, we, we've seen a lot of signals where people say, like, we thought that a prototype we had was not quite there yet in terms of mimicking the animal product perfectly. But actually, consumers liked that touch of something a little bit different. Oh, so that sort of often we change our priorities too based on human, right? We, do, we try to do as much as we can based on machine analytics and predictive modeling. And then we have amazing innovators, just sort of, you know, art, artisanal experts that, that have a background in dairy cheese and, and other areas. Um, so we try to be sort of extremely deterministic in our product development and, and improvement, continue, continuous refinement. But sometimes we also want to be really open-minded to sort of serendipitous discoveries where we're like, oh, this is not the way we thought it should be. There's actually an even, there's an even better way. We, we, we want to be surprised and learn from surprises. So you've mentioned a lot of terms here like machine learning, analytic learning, or even the predictive aspect of this. And you've even mentioned the really popular buzz phrase, AI, right? Artificial intelligence. Can you take us through at a very elementary level for somebody who doesn't have necessarily a background in science or engineering or astrophysics, as it were, what role does data science, machine learning, all of these things that are now coming to the fore of you know, human consciousness. I would say it's 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 like in the past three months become everyone's talking about AI. What role does that play in executing on what sounds like a pretty lofty aspiration? I mean, you're talking about changing the world with your product. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what I was hinting at earlier is that 
there are just too many plants to screen and too many ways to you know treat the plants that you know for for humans just to do it in a in a sort of traditional kitchen setup so instead we use analytics uh, analytical instruments that recreate the human interaction with food on the flavor side on the texture side on the sort of side of the performance when you heat the food when you you know cook with it you coagulate it what you you know like in the case of cheese you basically take a milk you coagulate the protein then you ferment it and age it so we try to recreate this these all these different ways humans interact with food as much as possible with very sensitive instruments um the reason we're doing that is because we can that way first of all understand animal products much better right to recreate an animal product you need to first understand the animal product you need to understand what makes it tick the way it does and not surprisingly there wasn't that much knowledge a couple of years ago before we got started like it's not like you could read a book that explains to you exactly why does a cheese taste the way it does or an egg scramble the way it does or a piece of meat sizzle the way it does because from the business perspective there was never really a good incentive to study these products because you they are, have them <laughs> they are what they are yeah. right like what i mean apart from maybe quality control considerations there was no reason to and there's also not that much innovation potential right you can't like how much have cows and milk evolved in the last 5000 years not that much so we needed to really collect that data and make it actionable meaning when you look at thousands of prototypes plant based prototypes that you're making to recreate the experience of an animal product you can't have a panel look at each subset of two out of these you know thousands of prototypes and the animal target you would need a panel of about 100 people just to do one comparison uh, so you know it would would be extremely expensive and then also the human panels are typically not very actionable meaning The human would maybe be able to tell you oh this is like 80% there in terms of the taste of an animal product and maybe a little bit more like they tell you oh yeah there is something that tastes a little bit more cheesy but they can't describe in well, words what does yeah. that mean right <laughs> so uh, what our instruments uh, allow us to do is to tell us well what does it mean that this tastes less cheesy when we want to make it more cheesy which small molecule that leads to a flavor in in dairy cheese do we need to create more of which small molecule that tastes more like a plant do we need to create less of it is it is more directional more more educational and from the machine learning perspective right these or ai right the two terms are usually used sort of synonymously they basically are used to describe the category of statistics that uses past data to make predictions about the future and so from the ai perspective what we do a lot here is what's called supervised learning so you have labels that describe your outputs in other words the human interaction with food which we try to cast into a machine analytics as much as possible just to be able to prototype more, more quickly and learn more quickly and then we have inputs which can be a protein you know sort of amino acid sequence it can be the chemical groups in a small molecule that describes flavor you name it and so we we try to predict the human sensory experience from these sort of inputs these microscopic chemical descriptors that that des that describe what you know the the world of food is made of what animal products mm -hmm. are made of what plants are made of and yeah so basically to to create the models between those inputs and the outputs so it seems the way that i'm understanding it and and i'm trying to regurgitate this to some level because i want to make sure that people who are listening can fully mm -hmm. appreciate this the way that i see it and you tell me if i'm wrong is that the machine learning or ai whatever you want to call it 
this does two primary things based upon what you just described. Number one is it collates the massive amount of data. Like think of every book that is ever written and then multiply that by a million. All this data that exists, this past data that you refer to and tries to predict based upon that past data, okay, which plants are actually going to maybe possibly mimic an animal product. And then once it identifies those plants and you create a prototype based upon that information, then the machine learning is then deployed in order to test it, to say, yeah, how close have we gotten? And to the extent that we're not close molecularly, taste-wise, texture-wise, in any other different way, the machine is able to tell us and describe for us much better than a panel of 100 people might tell you, okay, this is what you got right, exactly. and this is what you got wrong. Yeah, no, you, you captured it perfectly. I think the one thing I would add is that a lot of the data we use, this is, I think, another way in which our you know, Climax is unique, is not actually cannot be found in existing literature. Almost all the data we use has been created in-house with our with our instruments, with our extreme. So you guys are actually collecting data in yeah. addition to collating the data and yeah, analyzing. Yeah, there's very there's very little data in the public domain, which again makes it, you know, a pretty bold sort of effort from the perspective of somebody starting a company because you just don't know at what point you'll have enough data. Earlier when we were chatting, I mentioned the example of chess computers. When I was a kid, right, chess computers were not able to beat the best chess players in the world. Today, you know, no, not, not, you know, Magnus would stand no chance against, <laughs> against the chess. I don't know. Ma Magnus might disagree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just a matter of time, right? The amount of data. Also, self-driving cars are now about two to three times safer than humans in an average traffic situation. It takes a while to collect enough data to sort of add to the human innovative ability. And to be also completely transparent, there's still a lot of human innovation that is happening here as well, right? We have brilliant product developers that, that make our products possible. But more and more, the, the data sets we've created in-house and the models that were trained from those data sets are adding to that human experience by finding sort of trends that humans just wouldn't have been able to predict. You, in some cases, can take a very abundant building block that is in plants everywhere around us, right? It's not like you need to... Usually it's not like you need to find some exotic plant that grows, you know, whatever, somewhere in Peru or you name it, that behaves exactly like the animal target that you're after. It's, you, it's more common that you'll find an, a plant that humans have already eaten for a long time. And you take a building block out of it and then you combine it with a building block out of another plant that humans have already eaten for a long time. And then all of a sudden you have magic. I think, again, from the AI perspective, all we care about is that the experience in the end is better than the animal product. We don't care about how on a chemical level that is, that is mediated, right? I think an analogy I like to use is, let's say, let's say you were an, a benevolent alien that came to, human, to, to Earth 200 years ago and saw humans riding on horses. And you're like, ah, oh, these poor humans, <laughs> you know, like they're using horses and the horses need to eat so much food and they poop and then, you know, they die too early. And, and it's like, and also they can't like go over an ocean. <laughs> Let's create a better way to transport humans and just give it to humans. Like one, one thing you could do is that would be very crude would be to create robotic horses, right? They look the same, they eat the same food, they waste the same percentage of the calories. But another way would be to create, you know, Teslas and planes and so on, right? 
And so, um, and, and that is exactly what humans wanted to accomplish, right? They didn't want to be shaken on a horse. For the rest of eternity. Another, right? <laughs> yes. and, and have to feed the horses sort of over, over amount of calories. They just wanted to get primarily from place A to place B. I think one approach to to, tack, to tackle the recreation of animal products in a more efficient way has been sort of assuming this, this, the necessity of a molecular identity. And there's a lot of companies that I also think are doing awesome work that are pursuing this approach, sort of how can we create a horse that looks like a horse, but maybe more efficiently. Our approach is more like, how can we take the, the horse out of the equation? How, how can we take the horse out of the equation? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And is there another way? And so that can look like, you know, sort of in, in a lot of foods, are made up of macronutrients and micronutrients. Well, all foods are made up of macronutrients. So macronutrients will be things like proteins, fats, carbohydrates. So if you holistically recreate a product, the protein does not need to look like an egg, let's say. It doesn't need to look exactly like albumins. The fat doesn't need to look exactly like the fats in an egg. But imagine it like a puzzle, right? You can you have an image of whatever Mount Everest and you cut it. You can cut it in many different ways. All you care about is that in the end, when you put it together, it looks like Mount Everest. Oliver can wax poetic for hours and hours on the innovation of food and the role that AI and data science plays in that regard. And that makes sense. The man is an astrophysicist and a fellow in cosmology, someone who literally woke up in the morning to figure out how the world began. But like you, I was a little skeptical about whether or not people would be okay knowing how much robot went into their food. I was actually surprised by his response. So I love how you describe what you're doing and the products that you're creating as successors, the legitimate successors, if you will, of the foods that preceded them. But I think there are a lot of people who have concerns about getting too much machine involved in their food. I mean, how natural is this? Is this really the way that humans should be evolving when it comes to the consumption of food? And do you think that there might be folks out there who are intimidated by the use of AI and machine learning in something that's supposed to be as you know, instinctive is going out to your garden and picking some kale and lettuce and things like it's a that. Great, it's, a, it's a great question, really, really rich questions. And I think at, at a high level, really important to emphasize that the foods that we create are, they have gone through much less processing than an animal. The ingredients are very understandable. In some cases, there are plants that, you know, might be exciting for humans to eat that maybe they don't have in their diet every day, but they're whole plants. There's no fillers, there's no flavor additives. There's nothing weird that people don't understand that is in them. Our lab is really just used to create the knowledge inventory to make the foods. But then the way the foods in the end are assembled, you know, is, is something that wouldn't be foreign to anybody who has cooked foods in their kitchen, right? If, if, I, if, if a great chef creating like you know uh, you know you, you, nice. create, you create amazing you know products you, you know for your for your for your youtube and, and tiktok channels you know there's typically not just one ingredient there's a bunch maybe a dozen maybe two dozens of ingredients can be in them and there's very sophisticated ways you convert them and the way we in the end assemble the products is not more complex than that it might actually be simpler we have you know because from the business perspective, you want to actually optimize towards simplicity because that also means the product will be cheaper to create and, and more affordable for more consumers that can then be part of this transition. 
So uh, really important to note that in the end, our, yes, we have a very sophisticated lab, but that is only to create the knowledge we then use to make very simple products in the end. You know, this is something actually I learned in, in, in astrophysics. Often when you try to recreate a very complex system, you try to simulate a very complex system, initially you start with kind of clumsy solutions where you sort of put band-aids on top of band-aids. And it will sort of resemble what you're trying to do, but it won't be very good. But the more deep your understanding of the system you're trying to recreate becomes, the more simple your solution becomes, right? You, in current generation of plant-based products, often people use a bunch of band-aids, like they buy flavor compounds from a flavor house, they buy gums from another supplier, they mix it together to recreate something that is kind of like the experience, but it's actually still lacking in a lot of ways. Again, you know, I have a huge appreciation for all companies that have come before us. We have learned a lot from them. And, and it's just that uh, fundamentally, when you have a more profound understanding of the complexity of an animal product, you can also come with a simpler, simpler replacement. Protein is a good example where a lot of the, so, so milk has a protein in it called, a group of proteins called casein. Caseins have a lot of very powerful functionality, including the coagulation behavior, the mountain stretch, and also some flavor attributes that come, especially in cheese aging, from the fermentation and aging processes. You can apply a bunch of band-aids to create the mouthfeel, the mountain stretch, the flavor attributes of casein. But if you found a protein replacement in plants that has those properties, all of a sudden you've solved all these problems at the same time. So yeah, so very understandable, very simple process that in the end, you know, our manufacturing, our first manufacturing facility we're building right now in Sonoma County, out of all places, sort of one of the most historically well-known places to produce dairy in, in, in the country is, you know, it's very, is, is basically a traditional dairy cheese making facility. It's just that the milk we use as input is different. It's made from plants in a very simple, understandable, low processing way. Most dairy processing facilities today, cheese manufacturers don't make their own milk anyway. It comes in tankers, right, of milk. And so it fits very sort of seamlessly into the system. One other thing I want to add to your question, you know, sort of going back to my heritage and growing up in Bavaria, where people are hardcore traditionalists about their animal products, right? The culture wouldn't, and you know, and I sort of in, a, in an uh, ancestral way have some appreciation for it. Our culture would not have been possible without using animals in the food system, right? Being in a place where they're, 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 the weather is bad most of the time, there isn't really much uh, nutritious fruit, fruit and other vegetables growing. It served us really well. And so for me coming back home with our products, when they started being tasting good, it was kind of scary. And then also now we talk a lot to, you know, French cheesemakers. We partnered with one of the oldest, most well-known French cheese businesses, European or global cheese businesses in the world recently. And there's always sort of a little bit of a, it's, it's anxiety inducing mm. to go to famous Michelin rated French, you know, chefs or, or French cheesemakers and present them with their products. But when they taste the products, and they see the ingredient statement that it's all understandable ingredients and they hear that it's actually better for them. I have not met a single person who cares that it comes from an animal. When the product tastes, the, the products taste this good, they're that nutritious and they're affordable. People are like, great, give me more. Give me more, yeah. And that's a really refreshing experience that I did not expect growing up. There's just a a shift in consciousness where, and I think there's actually a good reason. A lot of, when I grew up in, you know, sort of in the Alpine area of Germany, a lot of the interactions humans have with the animals are 
grounded in environmentalism, actually. Even though at scale, animals are not an environmentalist solution to, 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 to food globally, the interaction there is very much, you know, we want to be stewards of the animals, of the environment. And so the basic mindset is already there. And when you then tell them, hey, actually, there's an even better way, you know, use this acre of land to instead of making grass for the animals, you know, make this legume or the seed that you can use directly to make an alternative milk. You know, all of a sudden your mountainous areas free up for doing more recreation and having less animals grazing. People, people are embracing it. They're loving it. Yeah. I, I think that whether you call it stewardship or even just an instinct for compassion, when we see another living sentient being, I think that's a very natural impulse of ours. And it's very heartwarming to hear that people are being so receptive to a solution that on its face and quite frankly on the mouth feels completely on par mm -hmm. with the traditional animal-based methodology. But then now, like you said, you can just remove the horse from the equation. You can remove the animal from the equation and thus you know, from a human perspective, we're allowed to be as compassionate or as stewards as I think we kind of instinctively feel we want to be. Mm -hmm. I want to move into that. I mean, we could talk about so many different things for hours, but I know you're a very busy man and I don't want to take up all of your time, but I want to shift into talking about specifically how successful the cheese has already been. I mean, I've gotten to try it. It's absolutely mind-blowing. I, I, I think, as I mentioned to you, it's super surreal for me because when my husband and I decided to adopt a plant-based diet, we did so with the understanding we would never be able to eat these things again. Mm -hmm. We would never be able to have the sensation of melty cheese. Mm -hmm. We would never be able to taste the sharpness of a blue cheese or you know the sweet kind of creaminess of a goat cheese. These are things that were no longer on the table for us, literally. Yeah. And so to now have them reintroduced is sort of a strange, joyous, but also like kind of ambivalent feeling. What has the reaction been from regular old people all the way up to, as you said, Michelin star chefs? Yeah, I think blowing people's minds is like the funnest part of the job, right? Climax. Yeah, it's the notion that you can have, and, and this is one of the reasons, right? At a high level, it's important to remind your listeners as well that we're just starting with cheese but the technology the the frameworks we're building is applicable to all kinds of foods one of the reasons we started with cheese and especially fancy cheese is because the notion that you can have the indulgence of it right fancy cheese is about indulgence it's not even people luxury don't, people don't even usually think about it as oh yeah that's a protein-rich product even though it actually is but it's like it's it's indul it's pure like this is something you do on the side sometimes the notion that you can have that and you can be responsible environmentally and you can have a superfood at the same time that is nutritious like full of nutrition and there's nothing bad in it and it doesn't have any of the allergens that dairy has by the way it does not compute with people like it's yes. not it, it it is it's almost prohibited like you cannot it cannot cannot, cannot be enjoyed be, like, yes <laughs> yeah superfood and indulgent and sustainable like that doesn't make any sense so when people eat it and just get really like we we get this all the time and it's initially I didn't expect it and I was anxious before we had any meeting with a famous chef or a famous cheesemaker and now I'm almost like it's like I'm just sitting there like oh yeah I'm <laughs> excited yeah, yeah, yeah I can't wait and then how they like they become emotional and it's exciting especially when they come in with a bias like we had this journalist in, in France she came in with this bias saying look 
I really don't like vegan cheeses, but you know, the company you're partnering with, you know, I've, we've interviewed them, Belle, we've interviewed them a bunch of times and we like what they're doing. So I'm here. And then she tasted the cheese and she was like, Sussy crazy. <laughs> this is crazy, right? And then she wrote this gushing review in her in her article about how the the the, the multiple products she tried just completely blew her mind. She cannot, she cannot, she doesn't understand it. Well, I, I, I would have to reiterate from my own personal experience as a vegan, it is mind-blowing, literally. But we actually, when we were at your launch party uh, about a month ago, we met with one of your former colleagues at Google, and he's not vegan. He's like, I'm not vegan. I'm a scientist. I'm here because I like Oliver and I want to support him. And he told us that when he tried the, because you have two versions of blue cheese, you have a milder, we younger have, version. About a dozen. But <laughs> okay, so the two that you featured was a There's younger a one. Cheeses, yes, yes, right? that's very true. <laughs> there was a younger version and a more aged version. And he tried the younger version mm -hmm. first, and he said, Oh yeah, well this is obviously a vegan cheese. Because it didn't have that very like, you know, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, mold forward kind of taste mm -hmm. to it. It hadn't been as, you know, aged. And then he tried the one next to it, which was the more aged version. And he immediately thought, oh, this must be the non-vegan version so that yes. people could compare yes. between the two. And then he subsequently had his mind blown when he realized, no, that's the vegan version as well. I imagine you get that reaction across the board. Oh, yeah. I mean, people even like vegans might sometimes get, you know, sort of a little frustrated because <laughs> they think we gave them we gave them a dairy cheese that they still remember how it tastes. Yeah. They're like, come on, like this is not. Like, well, I mean, <laughs> that must be so gratifying for you. I mean, how does that feel personally to see that reaction over and over again? Yeah, it's super exciting. I mean, I get emotional, right? I Even though I have all the knowledge of how the products are created and it becomes pretty deterministic at some point, when a product hits a certain threshold of just giving you the emotional experience that you have associated with this product, in my case growing up, it's very emotional. You know, my team here sort of knows me as being just very picky about the quality of the food. And so when the products hit a certain threshold and I get to taste them, they're usually standing there already recording <laughs> me because they want to see me cry. Oh, my God, that's so beautiful. Oh, I love that. Oliver is obviously a brilliant scientist and a high-energy CEO who goes around blowing people's minds. But I wanted to get a better sense of the team he's put together to create these mind-blowing experiences for Turophiles across the world. Are they all just a bunch of scientists like him? I, I want to talk a little bit about your team. You have mentioned that you have some incredibly brilliant product developers, and it sounds like you've got an army of scientists here as well. When you're figuring out who you want to bring on to Climax, how many of them do you feel like are as passionate, enthusiastic, and excited about the mission behind the company? And also, what goes into how you decide you're the right fit for us? Yeah, so we've been blessed with an incredible flow of candidates, especially over the last couple of months. I can we're understand coming, why. <laughs> we were in stealth, right? For two years, we were in stealth. Most people, except for very much insiders, technological insiders, didn't know about us. And so now that we've come out of stealth and, you know, external people are raving about our products, the, the flow of amazing talent has been incredible and honestly kind of overwhelming because we, we don't have much of a recruiting department here yet. To, to sift through all of that. And yeah, I mean, what we, 
What we're looking for is a mix of skills that are applicable. In many cases, kind of unorthodox skills though as well, because when you reinvent you know, something that's been around for thousands of years, you, you really have to think outside the box, right? You, you, you might benefit more from a material scientist that has done, you know, 3D printing to give a somewhat random example than from a traditional food scientist who's been at a, at a dairy company. But you also want maybe a couple of those traditional food scientists. So it's very important to sort of optimize for diversity in terms of skills. And then, of course, as I think any capable leader knows, diversity in terms of people's backgrounds in general, because that's where innovation comes from, right? P teams that are not diverse are, are not innovative. And then, yeah, sort of that hunger for innovation, a passion for navigating ambiguity, because there's always a lot of ambiguity. The you know In a startup, the a significant fraction of the things you'll do are not just going to be an application of your past skill sets. Like I'm not using any of my astrophysics, uh, well, really? I'm using some of my astrophysics, <laughs> my data science chops here, but you know, I'm also doing a lot of things that I've never done before. And so thriving in that, loving that, just sort of, to, you know, anything that is necessary towards accomplishing our mission more effectively, that, that kind of mindset, we call it climaxness. <laughs> yeah, sort of inter it's internally a little bit boring from the, from the term Googliness. But, you know, <laughs> at, at Google, at recruiting, one of the categories that's very important is Googliness. Mm. And it's kind of hard to define, but the more we go through recruiting processes, the more we sort of internally understand what it, what it is. And yeah, so a, a lot to say there, but we're still also learning about how to find the best, the best people to, to come along for the ride. As I mentioned earlier, Oliver didn't start out in the food industry. Instead, he studied cosmology, which we'll hear about from him, because prior to meeting Oliver, if someone asked me what it was, I probably would have thought it had something to do with makeup. I wanted to understand how he went from studying the universe to creating vegan cheese. The story unfolds in what I'm learning is Oliver's characteristically roundabout way. But as you'll hear, the end is actually very close to the beginning of Oliver's story, the study of what it means to be human. Well, I think what you just described about googliness or climaxiness, I think is such a great way to frame the discussion of your own story. Because, you know, as much as you say you don't use your astrophysics chops or you're, you know, you're clearly utilizing some of it and you're clearly utilizing your background in data science, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about on this podcast is how a person starts from A and then somehow ends up at Z which might not look anything like what they anticipated. Mm -hmm. So back when you were, you were a cosmologist, is that right? Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what that actually means? Because I'm not entirely clear. Yeah, so cosmology is the area within astrophysics that looks at the universe on very large spatial and temporal timescales. So it's actually a fairly new discipline. Like when I was a kid, you know, whatever, 40 years ago, there, it, it didn't really, there wasn't a lot of data, basically. There was not a lot of information about the universe at large. People knew that there are galaxies outside our own, but they didn't know how they cluster, how they evolved, how they were formed. And so when I got into it in college about 25 years ago, I got into it just at the right time when those data sets were being created and people could understand bizarre things like, what is dark matter? What is dark energy? How did inflation, this period of super luminal expansion, fast than the speed of light expansion in the very early universe, you know, how did that happen? What may have driven it? And so what fascinated me about that field is that you had to think outside the box all the time because 
the physics of the early universe was not known. You needed to come up with it. The mathematics, even in some cases, you know, you, you needed to come up with, you needed to invent it. And, and, you know, food is actually kind of similar in that regard. I was in cosmology during sort of one of the most exciting periods of it. And it's kind of cool also from sort of, it's good to reflect back sometimes that right? we live at this time where the universe is 13.7 billion years old and has created these entities that can reflect back on the whole thing, right? To live at that thin sliver of time, like a hundred years ago, nobody had any clue what the universe looks like on large scale. You know, and now we know so much. And so to live in this thin sliver of time where we have the technological means and the computational means to understand, make sense of our, all of our origins and the origins of the whole universe is a huge privilege. At the same time, there's also a huge responsibility because not coincidentally, this technology has also allowed us, to, uh, put us in, in uh, gave us, given us the power to basically end everything. So evolutionarily, we're sort of at this branch right now where we can decide, do we, you know, like many species, go, do go down the drain of evolutionary history? We just sort of destroy, you know... Cause our own extinction. Cause our own extinction, or we, we don't adapt to environmental pressures quickly enough. Or do we become the superhumanity, this, this, you know, species that uses our intellect to evolve faster than the environmental, you know, sort of circumstances would, 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 would allow? When you decided to study cosmology back in college 25 years ago, did you know you wanted to apply any of that to superfoods? No, I really just wanted to be part of something bigger than... Like the universe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wanted to, yeah, it was an exciting period from the, you know, I, I was always a very mathy kid. So it was an exciting area to get into just technologically. And, and because I knew more data sets would be created. And so uh, it was just sort of purely from the nerd perspective, it was a great time to get into it. And it's also kind of the ultimate sort of context, right? To look at where everything came from, where will everything Absolutely. go? So just super fascinating. But at some point, you know, after I had sort of found to the pinnacle of my career in astrophysics and published, you know, like lots of papers. And, Over a hundred. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. And, you know, I had sort of a permanent position here at, at, at Berkeley and started, started an, an interdisciplinary institute for data science there as well with, with some other, other cool people. I just felt this itch to contribute to something that is necessary to uh, create the conditions where humans can do unnecessary things like astrophysics, right? Because to, to be clear, unnecessary things like art, music, you know, science, they're, they're not like necessary for survival all the time, but they're also part of our condition. And I, you know, I want my kids, their kids to be, to live in a world where we can be, we can be these innovative individuals and, and do things that are not just necessary for, for like making it from day to day for survival. But to be able to do that, we need to create the foundation. We need to create conditions for humanity to, to really thrive and for it to thrive more equitably than it has so far. You know, a lot of the wealth and, and uh, you know, in some cases, in some ways it's getting better, in some ways it's getting worse, it's distributed. And a lot of sort of the ability to, to, to educate themselves is still distributed to a very small um, percentage of humanity. So um, to, to create a more equitable foundation for, for everybody, you're building a better food system is one very important way to do that. And I think food kind of stands out because it's not just the environmental degradation, right? You know, as I said earlier, food creates more global warming than all modes of transportation combined. But by converting food from secondary protein to primary protein using plants directly, you also free up a lot of the, the agriculture, the arable land on earth, which is the only known way we can actually revert, reverse global warming, right? 
today. We just talk about, oh, you know, you can stop flying for vacation. You have to stop doing X, Y, Z. You have to stop driving to delay doomsday when the climate will completely go down the drain. And that's not very inspiring. But the beauty is that we have one very concrete known way to actually control the climate, to take the CO2, take the carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back in the ground where it came from, where we took it from over the last 200 years. And the only known way is plants, right? That's what plants do. They take CO2 and they convert it into sort of bound solid organic matter. And that can be put back into the soil in multiple, there's multiple known ways. But the only way to do it is to free up agricultural area, which right now there is so much pressure to use everything from, so much that, you know, people cut down the Amazon rainforest and other, other native uh, forests to create more just because of this huge inefficiency, right? 80% of the calories on earth are, are grown through plants that are fed to animals that produce less than 20% of the calories we actually eat. So huge inefficiency. The only way to, to get rid of that is to, is to uh, remove animals as much as possible from the food system. And to sort of c complete the story, there are, right, there's other ways in which we produce global warming, like electricity production and industry in general. But we kind of already have a solution to those ways because the sun the solar. Um, you know, radiates more than a thousand times more energy onto Earth every day than we use. So it's just a matter of scaling existing know-how about photovoltaics and coming up with maybe better ways to store the energy than a bunch of politics to get rid of that mode of, of global warming. And the incentives. Uh, um, increase. Mm -hmm. But food, we really, uh, you know, until recently we hadn't known of a way because people just love love animal products, how practical they are to cook with, with and so on. So one of the things you talked about early on, and I just want to touch on this because I think it's interesting, is that one of the goals of Climax and one of your personal goals is to bring cost parity, right, to what you're creating. You don't want people to have to pay more no. for your cheese than they would for craft cheese or whatever animal-based cheese is out there. When you think about the amount of subsidies that the dairy industry shamelessly consumes, how are you possibly going to achieve cost parity when presumably you're not going to be the beneficiary of those kinds of subsidies anytime soon? Yeah, I mean, first of all, there are some very serious efforts, you know, f starting from governments and also from independent groups encouraging governments to shift the incentive structures towards, you know, a sustainable, towards a, a realistic future. But secondly, we, we have the luxury of starting with a huge competitive advantage compared to the animal product because we do not need to produce 10 times more calories, 10 calories. Mm. Uh, we, need, we do, do not need to buy or grow. And, and we work with some farmers directly you now to grow some of the ingredients for our products. It's actually really exciting. And I can tell you more about it. We don't need to produce 10 times more calories or even more to, to, you know, to, to make a given amount of calories for consumers. So we start with a huge competitive advantage. And then, of course, because we don't, always use the entire plant, you know, maybe there's some loss in, 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 in that too, right? It's like when you cook something, right? You don't necessarily use... There's a little waste. You don't, there's always a little bit of waste, right? In some cases, though, we can actually leverage the waste, uh, or as it's called mm -hmm. more nicely, the side stream from other industries. So then there's literally zero waste, which is actually really exciting that some of our ingre ingredients are actually upcycled ingredients from other industries. And so, yeah, we start with this huge, huge advantage. And then as a result of being a very small company and making pr food, producing food in very small volumes and not being subsidized by the government, there are, there are some losses, but we are able to start um, launching our products 
next month, just about at price parity with animal products, which is very, despite all these enormous inefficiencies. And we will, in a couple of years, be cheaper than the animal products That's for incredible. sure. So, yeah. That's incredible. Without any handouts. <laughs> yeah, and that's super exciting. Like, as I like to put it, right, when you have, we have a 10x inefficiency in the system, when you remove that inefficiency of the animal that uses the majority of the calories to just stay alive, there's so much to give to consumers. You can offer cheaper products to consumers. You can pay the farmers much more because all of a sudden they don't have this pressure to have to make, produce so much food for so little uh, bottom line, you know, and, and, and also, you know, dairy and, and meat producers, their, their profit margins are often very slim that a lot of them are at the verge of bankruptcy all the time. Mm -hmm. So everybody will be better off. And this is really the exciting part and can't emphasize enough how natural it is for humans to tinker and, and do new things, come up with better ways to, to assemble the products we love most. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's just a natural continuation. And the only thing data science really does is accelerate this transition. It's not, there's nothing artificial, scary that is introduced into the food. Again, the outcomes, the label is extremely clean, understandable, and kind of exciting actually to read when people see what, what goes oh, into the product. Oh, I know what's in here, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so in the end, it's just, it's truly better in every way. Just like, you know, my parents didn't just take the recipes that their parents came up with and, and repeated them, but they added their own touch. We're basically doing the same thing, but just like fast forward, you know, a few thousand years to human innovation so we can do it on time. Because if we take even a thousand years to come up with a replacement to animal agriculture, it, it is a very dangerously long time. Mm. Uh, yeah. So before we conclude, I definitely want to touch upon one of the big wins I would characterize in, in just past few days, it sounds like. You mentioned earlier that you are now going to be partnering with one of the most well-known and probably prestigious French cheesemakers or European cheesemakers. Is that Bell? Yep. To the extent that you can share, can you tell us a little bit about how that all came to be? Because I think everyone who's listening to this, and I can certainly attest to this, has had that little round of cheese that we kind of opened up the red wax when we were little kids. And I know they already have a plant-based version. So I'm curious to see kind of what role Climax will play and how that all came to be. Yeah, for sure. A lot of dairy companies have heard about what we're doing and find it very interesting, I think, for multiple reasons. One being this inefficiency that I mentioned earlier, right? The inefficiency uh, necessitates that the profit margins are very, very slim. And so uh, the idea to move to plants directly instead of having to pay for everything that goes into keeping the animals alive and keeping the outcomes safe, right? Because animals can have diseases that that can jump over to humans, plants cannot, is, you know, it's just very well known to dairy producers. So there's been a lot of interest in working with us because of the quality of the products and, and simplicity of, of producing them. And Bell stood out as our first partner because the mission, mission alignment seemed very authentic. It seemed to go beyond just the, oh, we want to increase our profit margins right. and, you know, sort of cater to customers that want a more plant-based product. No, it was beyond that. It was really, yeah, we have internally decided that we want to be more sustainable. They did an independent analysis of where they produce carbon footprint and where they use water. 
and sort of went into it very naively initially, hoping that they can put some solar panels onto their factories and then found, oh crap, the 80% of our carbon footprint comes from the fact that we're a 150-year-old dairy company. And so then the, 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 they, they, and I think especially their new CEO, who I get along with very well, was like, okay, we just have to change this, right? Uh, and so by, by 2030, they want to be at least 50% plant-based, which is, you know, it's a very short horizon for a traditional food company, especially one that's 150 year, years old. And so that authenticity in wanting to do the right thing and also wanting to do it in a way that doesn't sacrifice is is no sacrifice to consumers right current generation vegan products often you know lack some some nutritional components and so they want to do it in a way where you know especially with mini baby bell when i ate it as a kid Right. My, my parents put it in my lunchbox. That's exactly what I because, got, yeah. You know, it was like there were carrots and crackers and then and there's the protein. Little cheese, yeah, exactly. Right? And so you need to do, you need to recreate this, the same nutritional richness. And so this is, again, for them is super important that, that their next generation of products will, will truly be successors. And, and yeah, that, 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 was, that sort of made me pick them. How heartening it must have been to discover that a company like Bell was actually that motivated to not just become aware of their carbon footprint and its size, but to then figure out a pretty radical way of addressing that carbon footprint and then partnering with the obvious partner to do that. Yep. That must have been very, very... I mean, I got chills just like listening to that. I didn't know that about them. Makes me want to eat all of their cheese more. <laughs> yeah. So that's really exciting. It's very exciting. And there's some other potential partners that, that we might work with as well. Well, I wanted to move to that. I mean, what do you see as the near future for Climax? I mean, when are people going to be able to like literally go to their grocery store and say, oh yeah, I'm going to get this cheese that tastes exactly the same as the cheese I grew up eating, only no animals were harmed? Yeah, so we're building out our artisanal cheese plant in Petaluma, Sonoma County, where there's a lot of famed, you know, dairies like Strauss, Clover, etc. And some really cool plant-based pioneers are there as well, like Miyoko's and Amy's. We, we're building our plant there that is relatively small volume production initially because, you know, you need to learn a lot. It's not like when you have a product at bench scale. Uh, you know already everything about how to feed the entire planet. <laughs> so, so especially when it's a completely novel kind of category of products. So we, the, the facility has been operational for a couple of weeks now, and we're going to be selling our first cheeses out of it in, I think, two weeks. So we're going to be in restaurants. We're starting with the initial chefs we talked to were very famous chefs like Dominic Crenn, uh, Jean-Georges, Matthew Kenny, others, many Michelin-rated chefs and other just amazing, well-known chefs that, that have a huge reputation because we really wanted to pressure test our products, right? And so because they helped us so much in, in getting to where we are today, we're launching with them first, right? They get first dips. But then as our uh, manufacturing capability expands, we're going to be producing more and more for more restaurants and eventually also for retail. Hopefully later this year we'll also be in retail. Wow. And then that is just the artisanal sort of, you know, our flagship products, you could say, because we wanted to aim for the most difficult to recreate category first. From going back to AI for a sec, that is also the best way to train powerful AI systems if you have a very complex target. Because then you can make the easier product, sort of, they, they already know the system then, and, and the, the, the human machine interaction synergy sort of already knows. And again, I cannot emphasize enough how brilliant a team we have here. It's the most, and I've worked with a lot of brilliant teams. Yes, right, at, we know. <laughs> at Astrophysics, at Google, at SpaceX. This is the most amazing, diverse, and just driven team I've ever worked with. 
And so, but our core sort of our flagship products that are completely produced by, us, by ourselves, you know, on our own, in our own facilities, branded just by ourselves, are, are going to be these artisanal aged cheeses. And then going to expand more and more into mass market products with Bell, with others, uh, maybe our, our, ourselves as well. And yeah, people will be able to see our products more and more, especially in, in, in retail, especially next year. And then also mass market product categories where hopefully we'll outcompete dairy also on the grounds of wow, price. That's amazing. Yeah. Beyond cheese, are we going to be doing anything in egg or even meat? Oh yeah, for sure. So we've already applied our technologies to prototyping other product categories. It's just right now we're a very small, scrappy team under under fifty people, and and we don't have we don't have the bandwidth to do everything. So so hopefully, although we wish we did. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so this year, hopefully, we'll go through a big uh, growth spurt. We're also going to go through another fundraise next quarter. Where you know that'll hopefully allow us to not just expand, you know, sort of the 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 the, the number of consumers that we can we can give our products to, but also the the core sort of R and D team, so we can work on more things and get them to the finish line more quickly. And yeah, that's that's very very exciting year ahead, especially for also for new talent to, to join us, and especially because we're so like science heavy right now. We're just a bunch of scientists that really until recently wasn't even like you know a business. We're learning how to be a business uh, now, which is a very exciting period. I'm a, I'm a scientist, and so uh, especially on the business side, we'll grow a lot, but we'll also easily double hopefully the size of the R and D team this year. But but on the business side, we're probably five x the size of the team because right now it's just it's less than a handful of people. Well, it's incredible. I mean, your story is incredible. The story of the company is incredible. But most amazingly, the cheese is absolutely unreal. Thank you so much for allowing me to taste that again. Like it's it is emotional. Like because when you when you close the door on something and then have somebody open that up in such an outlandish and outrageous way, it's hard not to kind of emotionally and viscerally respond to that. So thank mm. you so much for all the, thank you for sitting down with me and chatting with me today. Thank you for having me. Oh. I've been a huge fan of yours. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of yours. I'm a huge fan of the guy who had cheese in his pocket while I was in an evening cap <laughs> and asking me to eat it. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I so, love it. You know, especially because you blend together the the emotional with the you know sort of cultural heritage with the innovative spirit that has always been part of the human sort of culinary experience so well in all the work you do. So huge honor to, oh. to talk to you today. And it's always so fun to see you. Well, thank you so much for ushering us into that future. It's very, very exciting and a lot more optimistic than where I was even just a couple months ago. Well, talk about full circle. In the same way that Oliver's cheeses brought me back to an experience I thought I'd relinquished for the rest of my life, it turns out that as the world grapples with the utility of artificial intelligence, we are beginning to relearn what it means to be human, something that I think we've all started to take for granted. Of all the things that Oliver celebrates in that quest, it isn't our love of good food that stands out the most to me. Rather, it's the Elon that attends our resilience, the vigor that catalyzes our survival as a species, our voices collected and bound as we resound into the dark corners of the universe, we were here. We are here. 
Thanks, everyone, for joining me for another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. If you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor, hit the like button below, hit subscribe if you haven't, leave a comment or a rating. And of course, most importantly, it would mean so much to me if you share this episode with your friends, your family, your loved ones, your colleagues, even on social media. In the meantime, until next week, I hope you have a lovely and wonderful day.